All Bones Considered, Laurel Hill Stories number 60 for March 2024. Women's History Month. Three more women who changed Philadelphia. Esther DeBert-Reed, Elizabeth Duane Gillespie, Anna McGee. National Historic Landmark and Arboretum, a sculpture garden, a nature preserve, and an active cemetery in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. It opened in 1836 and remains a popular visiting spot for tens of thousands of visitors every year. Its sister cemetery, Laurel Hill West, located across the Schuylkill River in Balakinwood, was founded in 1869. It has a history and a population of its own. I am Dr. Joe Lex, retired professor of emergency medicine at Temple University in Philadelphia, volunteer tour guide at Laurel Hill East and Laurel Hill West, and volunteer podcaster. Women have played a major but under-recognized role in our nation's history since the beginning. London-born Esther DeBert Reed married a man who became George Washington's right-hand man and switched her Tory allegiance to become a radical patriot. The organization she founded to provide some relief to the soldiers fighting for her freedom didn't quite go the way that she had planned. Elizabeth Duane Gillespie came from a politically active family. She was the chief fundraiser and organizer for the Sanitary Fair of 1864 which put her in a position to lead the way for the Centennial Exposition of 1876. Anna McGee was the last of seven siblings who lived together their entire lives. Her legacy for the family was a hospital designed for people who were convalescing from injury or illness, the McGee Rehabilitation Hospital. And I will not have time to talk about sculptor Beatrice Fenton or inventor Seraph Deal, but I hope to cover them in a future podcast. The three women that I mentioned are featured in this month's episode of All Bones Considered, Laurel Hill Stories number 60 for March 2024. Three more women who changed Philadelphia. Esther DeBert Reed. 1747-1780. It was love at first sight. In 1763, the barely 17-year-old Esther DeBert, D-E-B-E-R-D-T, headstrong daughter of London merchant Dennis DeBert, 
met Joseph Reed, the handsome merchant from Trenton, New Jersey. He may have been five years her senior, but he was the only man for her. Joseph was doing business with her father, as he also studied law in London, so he was at their home quite often. And his interest in Esther, whom family called Hetty, seemed to be mutual. They started with exchanged glances, and soon secret notes changed hands. Esther knew that her parents liked Joseph, so she thought that he would be her life mate. She wanted him to propose to her so they could marry and settle in London, close to her parents. And it happened in September 1764, a month before Esther's 18th birthday. Joseph Reed asked Denise DeBert for his daughter's hand in marriage. To the disbelief of both Joseph and Esther, Denny's not only rejected the proposal, but banned further communication between the two moonstruck lovers. So they found ways to secretly communicate. On 1 November 1764, Miss DeBert wrote to Mr. Reed, This is the fourth time I have sat down to write you. Three times I went no further than to write my letters half through. Once it was quite finished, folded up and directed, and now I think I am doing what is contrary to my father's will, and was he to know it, he would never forgive me. It must never be known that I ever gave you such encouragement by writing a single line. So I believe that not only my parents, but every prudent person would say I'm now acting a wrong part. Besides, in spite of all my wishes, I see so many almost insurmountable difficulties that my conduct seems more and more to blame, for as my going to America, it cannot be. It would bring down the gray hairs of my dear and affectionate parents with sorrow to the grave. Indeed, it would be more than I could bear to leave them. The letter goes on to explain her impossible situation. The de Bert clan were French Flemings who had migrated to Great Britain in the mid-16th century from Ypres. Denny's was a modestly successful trader who specialized in dealing with the colonies, a high-risk proposition. Joseph Reed came to London well represented with letters of introduction, including one from the new royal governor of New Jersey, William Franklin, an extramarital son of Benjamin Franklin. De Baird also had done business with Joseph's father, Andrew Reed, and his brother-in-law, Charles Pettit. They were partners in the firm Reed and Pettit out of Trenton and Philadelphia. Since young Joseph Reed had arrived in London, he had been under the wing of Denny's de Baird. Esther was baffled by her father's refusal. There were no religious impediments to the partnership. Joseph was an educated gentleman. He'd attended the College of New Jersey, later Princeton University, and he was now studying for the bar in London. And Esther thought that her father really liked him. In another letter, she explained to Joseph, I have heard him say of you more than I ever heard him say of any other gentleman from America. I love the man. I can assure you that's a great deal for him. 
Esther's age probably had something to do with it. Many a father has done what he could to prevent a young daughter from throwing her life away on a charming but insubstantial young man. In addition, few respectable London women married before the age of 20, and most did not marry until they were in their mid-20s. But despite rejection by her father, Esther had no plan of giving up her pursuit of Joseph. Esther was bright and well-educated. She had a sound grasp of written language and had been trained in penmanship. She was disciplined to write and rewrite her sentences until they were clear and graceful. It was not unusual for her to reject two or three drafts of her letters until they conveyed precisely what she wanted them to. When Joseph next came to Sunday dinner at the DeBerts, he had a letter for Esther, and she had one for him, but they were unable to exchange them at that time. In another of her secret notes, she wrote, My parents have not the least suspicion of our correspondence, but this scheme of letting you come to our house and imagining you will look on me with indifference may not altogether be consistent with every degree of prudence. At Sunday dinner on 6 December 1764, Joseph broke the news that he had to return to the colonies because of family economic struggles at home. Esther was quietly furious, and her agitated state of mind was commented on by dinner guests. She felt betrayed. Indeed, I always thought that you intended to stay here. Sure, I did not raise my hopes without any foundation. But despite the bickering and misunderstandings, the young couple still loved each other above any other. Esther confessed the strong desire to spend time alone with Joseph, but could not figure out how to make that happen. Finally, Monday evening, 5 February 1765, shortly before Joseph's scheduled departure, the young lovers finally spent an evening together alone. For the first and only time in their six-year courtship, they found themselves in each other's arms. Esther had to deceive both family and friends to make this happen, but she was exhilarated by the time they spent together. And then Joseph was gone to America, and Esther suffered a collapse. She took to her bed for weeks. It would be five long years before the lovers saw each other again. Joseph Reed arrived home to find the family business in financial freefall. Parliament's passage of the Stamp Act in 1765 and the Townshend Acts of 1767 would add kindling to the fiery conversations on both sides of the ocean concerning the rights and duties of colonists and the relationship between Parliament and the legislative bodies of the 13 colonies. Esther and Joseph had arranged through friends to secretly exchange correspondence. While Esther expected him to return to London so they could marry and raise a family together, she may have also hinted that she might come to him in America if he called for her. They kept up their secret and somewhat sketchy letter writing from their separate continents. Most ships that sail between Great Britain and America would carry mail for a fee. Packet ships left on a fixed schedule, usually about once a month. 
other ships departed whenever they were ready. Both types of ships arrived at their destinations whenever weather, human skills, and chance determined. Six months could easily elapse between the time Esther wrote a query and the time she received Joseph's response. Equally frustrating, letters did not always arrive in the same sequence in which they were sent. Esther thought at times Joseph neglected her. She tracked down every ship that came from America. She expected letters on each ship and was disappointed when they were not forthcoming. One thing did make it easier for her. Her mother found out and joined the conspiracy. The letters that Esther and Joseph exchanged during this time continued their tug of war about where they would settle. Esther had no desire to leave London and family, while Reed was making a career in the colonies. 24-year-old Joseph Reed had managed to rescue the family fern from the brink of collapse, but his success meant the odds of returning to London were less and less likely. But by 1767, Reed's company was solvent and even thriving. As Esther approached her 21st birthday in October 1767, she wrote more specifically about marriage and even dragged her mother into the conversations. In her letter of 4 July 1768, she suggested she might just end the connection. After she declared her eternal love and fidelity, she wrote, If this obstacle to our happiness do appear insurmountable to you, My will shall be yours, and we must leave the hand of time to erase the traces character of our mutual friendship. But then she quickly retreated, and she said, But oh, my dear friend, how does my heart recoil? No, it must be otherwise. Providence will sure smile on us and give us the opportunity of joining hands since it has haunted our hearts. By 1769, Joseph Reed had his business affairs in order enough in the colonies and determined it was now time to return to the woman and the city that he loved. The winter crossing to Liverpool was miserable, plagued by bad weather, low-quality travel companions, uncomfortable quarters, incompetent sailors. By the time he had reached landfall in England 30 days after leaving Philadelphia, Dennis DeBert's business had collapsed. Much to his frustration, Joseph was stuck in Liverpool as repairs were made to the ship, and he expected to reach London in just a few days. But then another catastrophe struck, and London newspapers announced the death of Dennis DeBert. Although Joseph had dug himself out of a financial hole in America, He was depending on DeBert to support him while he was in London, and now he thought about going back to America. When Joseph examined the books of the DeBert firm, he saw there was no way out, and he told the creditors they might expect no more than 12 cents on the pound, roughly 62 cents on the dollar. Joseph also realized that his expected dowry of 10 to 20,000 pounds was not to be. There was a lot of discussion between the lovers. 
In the past five years, Reed had rescued his own family from financial catastrophe, and now he found himself in the same situation with the family of the woman he loved. He wrote home, I am again embarked on a sea of disappointment. Esther and Joseph sought solace in each other's company. During his years digging out from financial troubles in the colonies, Esther had stayed faithful. Now the shoe was on the other foot, and Joseph followed through on his proposal of five years earlier. On 22 May 1870, they married in a small chapel near the DeBert residence. She was 23 years old, he was 28 years old. Esther had married the man she had chosen for herself when she was 17, and now they would face the future together. They did not reveal the marriage to their friends. Before they set sail for America in the fall, Joseph Reed arranged the financial matters of DeBert's company so that the family was not totally destitute. Secret newlyweds Joseph Reed and Esther DeBert Reed arrived in Philadelphia on 26 October 1770. By now, Parliament had repealed all the Townshend taxes, except for the one on tea. The colonial boycotts had ended, trade had resumed, tempers had cooled, and there was peace and prosperity between the colonies and the mother country for the next three years. Esther was five months married, two months pregnant, sick and unhappy. Seasickness and morning sickness both had plagued her throughout the 30-day crossing, and she arrived, quote, worn almost to a skeleton by constant sickness, end quote. Once in America, they traded the ship for a stagecoach that went over rough roads and two rivers for the last 22 miles to a home in Burlington, New Jersey that belonged to the Pettit family. Esther accepted her unpleasant circumstances as a temporary necessity, just until Joseph could make enough money to go back to London. Although she was unhappy in the colonies, she saw that the businesses had started to prosper. But she was bored to tears in provincial Burlington. She remarked in a letter to her brother that Burlington, quote, was remarkable for nothing, end quote. Joseph saw his wife's discomfort. He arranged a move to the largest city in the colonies, Philadelphia. The elite of the city welcomed Esther with open arms, but she did not reciprocate. She found most of their conversations revolved around bickering neighbors or mercantile exchange, and neither subject really interested her. She even complained about Philadelphia's weather when she compared it with her beloved London. It was too sunny. Quote, there is so much clear burning sunshine in these three summer months that I do not to wish for any more all the years. End quote. During their first months in Philadelphia, they had no fixed abode. But mid-December, they took a lease on the Talman House, just a block or so from the courthouse. And their possessions arrived from England. By early February, the household was settled, and the mistress of the house, now about to start her third trimester, at last had her own household to run, with the help of a few enslaved people. Esther and Joseph's first child, Martha, named for Esther's mother, but whom everyone called Patty, 
arrived in May 1771, and she was Baptist at the Arch Street Presbyterian Church. While Esther recovered from the strain of childbirth, her mother Martha was more than happy to take over the care of her new namesake granddaughter. Patty was a frail baby, and family and friends had pretty much given up hope early that she would ever grow and flourish, but she started to fill out with some weight and some muscle when she was about two years old. Esther quickly bore two additional babies, Joseph Jr. in 1772 and Esther Jr., also called Hattie, in 1774. Now she was nursing the infant, controlling the toddler, teaching the three-year-old rudimentary lessons, and she became Joseph's private secretary. She had learned much about international mercantile trade while working with her father in the last few years of his life. Joseph's primary income came from a full load of cases he was trying in Philadelphia courts and in circuit courts of surrounding counties. As they accumulated wealth, the Reeds acquired land, at least 600 acres in Bucks County, as well as additional tracts in Orange, New York, and swamps northwest of the city of Philadelphia. By 1775, Joseph and Esther Reed coordinated and directed a complex mix of family-based enterprises that included a thriving legal practice, ocean-going commerce, debt collection, land speculation, property management, and shrewd manipulation of the imperial patronage system. Joseph estimated their total worth at 7,335 pounds. He said that his law library was worth 150 pounds, house furniture worth 300 pounds, a wine cellar worth 70 pounds, two enslaved African Americans worth 150 pounds each, and a lot on Chestnut Street worth 300 pounds. This is at a time when a skilled laborer could expect to make about five shillings a day. That means they might make 35 to 40 pounds yearly. As the colonies acknowledged their need to tear away from Mother England, Joseph and Esther settled into different camps. From the fall of 1773 through the winter of 1777-78, Joseph Reed supported American resistance and worked, negotiated, and fought bravely and heroically to preserve both American rights and America's connection to Great Britain. Esther started as a sympathetic but apprehensive involuntary emigre who initially saw this dispute as just another impediment to going home. Eventually she saw the events clearly and had no choice but to throw her lot with the patriots and commit herself to support what she eventually called the, quote, glorious cause, end quote. And like many converts, she threw herself wholeheartedly into suddenly being a traitor to her birthland. Esther DeBert Reed was recognized in the colonies as an intelligent, charming, ambitious, cosmopolitan, strong-willed, well-educated, politically aware young woman. She thought nothing of engaging prominent men in weighty discussions about the revolution. She was a creature of fashion, even to the point of dressing her enslaved servants in full livery. Recruitment of soldiers was a primary need of the military. 
On Friday, 5 May 1775, a call brought out 4,000 men to drill practice, including 300 Quakers. All the city bells were chiming. Esther and Joseph stayed up past midnight debating military tactics with newly arrived congressmen. On occasion, George Washington dined at their table. Both Joseph and Esther were losing faith that the difficulties with Britain could be settled without firing a flintlock. The British resort to arms at Lexington and Concord in Massachusetts placed new and powerful obstacles in the road to reconciliation. Esther, like many of her neighbors, would have preferred to remain English, but her countrymen had driven her away. The young girl whose strongest wish was for her hand-selected partner to become her husband with successful business in London was now lost, or at least postponed, for a number of years. Esther de Burt was born and raised a Britisher, a Tory by nature. Esther de Burt Reed was a patriot through and through, and she started to look for ways in which she could assist the war. In 1775, Joseph Reed was appointed lieutenant colonel in the Pennsylvania militia. When his friend George Washington was assigned commander-in-chief, Reed became his aide-de-camp. In June 1775, Reed served as adjutant general of the Continental Army with the rank of colonel, and he fought in the Battle of Long Island. He became one of General Washington's closest confidants. Washington wrote letters to him frequently, rarely traveled or made any substantial military decision without first consulting Reed. Because of his knowledge of the terrain of New Jersey, Reed was instrumental in the planning of the Battle of Trenton. He fought in the Battle of Princeton and provided important intelligence back to Washington. He was involved in the second crossing of the Delaware. He fought in the Battle of Brandywine, the Battle of Germantown, the Battle of Monmouth. And in October of 1775, Esther gave birth to a second daughter, Theodosia. The next month, Joseph returned from the front with Washington to Philadelphia. And for the next two and a half years, Joseph and Esther Reed sat at the eye of the revolutionary storm. Both argued for reconciliation between Great Britain and her North American colonies and a return to the harmony of the years before 1764. Joseph condemned the British for seizing American ships, burning its towns, and killing its people. He praised America's unity, military might, and its determination to fight to, quote, preserve our country from tyranny and bondage, end quote. Esther postured less. She asserted less. She accused less. While Joseph accused, blamed, and threatened, Esther soothed and enticed. But both knew they must prepare for war. And he kept his promise to Esther, and Joseph tendered his resignation. They relocated back to Burlington, a day's ride north across the Delaware River from Bristol, safely upstream from the range of British warships. The Reeds still had to make that major decision. Would Joseph serve in the military or as a civilian advisor? Esther was terrified of losing this man to whom she had devoted six years of her young life to winning and six years to building a life together. George Washington wanted Reed back. 
Martha Washington visited the Reed household several times for dinner, and the conversation eventually led to getting Joseph back as Washington's right-hand man. And against the wishes of Esther, Joseph made his decision to once again be a soldier. He updated his will, and he headed to the front. Even before the gunfire started, his letters home described the havoc being sown by smallpox and dysentery. He began many of his letters with the terrifying greeting, I am alive. Soon he was in the thick of battle, and he narrowly escaped death more than once. He had two horses shot out from under him. Esther watched with horror as her former British countrymen, now bitter enemies, occupied Philadelphia for the winter of 1777-78. Those were the worst two years of her life. In preparation for the invasion, Joseph had obtained a farmhouse with some land near Norristown, about 17 miles up the Schuylkill River. And now Esther became a farm wife. She was buying seed, renting land, planting flax, negotiating the purchase of a cow with a neighbor. Now that he was back in the military, Joseph had a bigger decision to make. Washington wanted him to command the Continental Cavalry. But his friends in the newly formed state government named him Chief Justice of the State at $1,000 a year. Against Esther's pleadings, he declined the judicial position and returned to the front. And at least three times during the fall of 1777, Joseph narrowly escaped death again. For the fourth time in two years, Esther, now nine months pregnant, had to move the family, this time to Flemington, New Jersey, where she delivered her fifth child, Dennis, on the 12th of May. And the next day, her 19-month-old daughter, Theodosia, died of smallpox. This nearly destroyed Esther. She became inconsolable. 1778, Joseph Reed was one of the signers of the Articles of Confederation. One December 1778, he was elected president of the Supreme Executive Council of Pennsylvania. That's a position analogous to the modern office of governor. That means Esther was now the first lady of Pennsylvania. While he was in office, Reed oversaw the gradual abolition of slavery in Pennsylvania and the awarding of revolutionary soldiers with lifelong half pay, in other words, a pension. Reed also carried on a public feud with Benedict Arnold, who was the military commander in Philadelphia at the time and appointed by his friend Washington. In February 1779, Reed brought multiple charges against Benedict Arnold for shady business dealings and abuses of power. The charges, which included favoritism and using state-owned wagons to transport his own goods, were debated by a special committee of Congress. They absolved Arnold of most of the charges, but recommended the case be turned over to the army. After much delay, as well as efforts by George Washington in favor of Arnold to remain patient to restore his reputation, in December 1779, the court-martial did not charge the general on any account. They did, however, recommend that Washington issue a reprimand, which he did. 
Arnold correctly believed that Washington was his greatest ally. Therefore, the reprimand was more than he could bear. This was the final slight to his honor that Arnold would tolerate. Arnold resigned his post in Philadelphia, but the charges by Reed are felt to be what led Arnold to commit treason later against the United States. In May of 1780, word reached Philadelphia that the British had taken Charleston, South Carolina. New recruits were needed, and the Pennsylvania government took steps to solicit funds to pay new army recruits. And in a totally unexpected move, the women of Philadelphia emerged from their usual domestic roles to announce their intention of founding the first large-scale women's association in American history. As the Pennsylvania Gazette put it delicately, the ladies adopted, quote, public-spirited measures, end quote. Up until then, American women had not engaged in any organized support of the war effort. Now that the American soldiers were suffering a serious loss of morale in the aftermath of the fall of Charleston, the women proposed a nationwide female-conceived and executed relief effort to aid the hard-pressed troops. The campaign began 10 June 1780 with the publication of a broadside, the sentiments of an American woman, composed by the 33-year-old Esther DeBert Reed, who was to become president of the Ladies' Association. Her sentiments asserted forcefully that American women were determined to do more than offer barren wishes for the success of the army. They wanted to be really useful, like, quote, those heroines of antiquity who have rendered their sex illustrious. The years of writing that Esther had done in her correspondence now blossomed into the manifesto that called for American women to support the cause of independence. I glory in all which my sex has done, great and commendable. I call to mind with enthusiasm and with admiration all those acts of courage, of constancy, and patriotism which history has transmitted to us. She held up Joan of Arc as an especially appropriate model, for she had driven from France, quote, the ancestors of these same British, whose odious yoke we have just shaken off, and whom it is necessary that we drive from this continent, end quote. Now, Esther admitted some men might perhaps disapprove women's activity, but in the current dismal state of public affairs, Anyone who raised this objection would not be, quote, a good citizen, end quote. Any man who truly understood the soldiers' needs could only, quote, applaud our efforts for the relief of the armies which defend our lives, our possessions, our liberty. By thus hinting that critics of her scheme would be unpatriotic, Mrs. Reed cleverly diffused possible traditionalist objections. Finally, she outlined her plan. Female Americans should renounce vain ornaments, donating the money they would no longer spend on elaborate clothing and hairstyles to the Patriot troops as the offering of the ladies. Three days after the publication of her broadside, 36 Philadelphia women met to decide how to carry out its suggestions. The results of their deliberations were printed as an appendix 
to sentiments when it appeared in the 21 June 1780 issue of the Pennsylvania Gazette, entitled Ideas Relative to the Manner of Forwarding to the American Soldiers the Presence of the American Women. The plan proposed nothing less than the mobilization of the entire female population. Contributions would be accepted from any woman in any amount. A treasuress appointed in each county would oversee the collection of money, keeping careful records of all sums received. Overseeing the work of each state's county treasuresses would be the wife of its governor. It would serve as treasuress general. Ultimately, all contributions would be sent to Martha Washington to be used for the benefit of the troops. Only one restriction was placed on the contribution's use. It is an extraordinary bounty intended to render the condition of the soldier more pleasant and not to hold place of the things which they ought to receive from the Congress or from the states. End quote. The Philadelphians started to collect funds even before the publication of their ideas. They divided the city into ten equal districts and assigned between two and five women to each. The women traveled in pairs. They visited every house and requested contributions from, quote, each woman and girl without any distinction, end quote. Among the collectors in the Fifth Ward, market to Chestnut Streets, were Sarah Franklin Batch, the daughter of Benjamin Franklin, and Anne Willing, Mrs. Tench Francis. Julia Stockton, Mrs. Benjamin Rush, worked in District 6. And in the 8th Ward, Spruce to Pine Streets, the canvassers included Alice Lee Shippen, a member of the prominent Virginia family and wife of a Philadelphia physician, Mrs. Robert Morris, and Sally McKean, wife of President's Chief Justice Thomas McKean. The fact that women of such social standing undertook the very unfeminine task of soliciting contributions, not only from friends and neighbors, but also from strangers, poor people, servants, supports the contention of one of the Philadelphians that they, quote, considered it as a great honor, end quote, to be invited to serve as canvassers. In a letter to a friend in Annapolis, an anonymous participant declared that, quote, those who were in the country returned without delay to the city to fulfill their duty. Others put off their departure. Those whose state of health was the most delicate found strength in their patriotism. When a nursing mother was reluctant to leave her baby, this witness recorded a friend volunteered to nurse the child along with her own. The ladies were unstoppable. One citizen characterized the collectors as, quote, so extremely importunate that people were obliged to give them something to get rid of them. Even the meanest alehouse did not escape their net, and men were harassed until they contributed in the name of their wives or sweethearts. I fancy they raised a considerable sum by this extorted contribution, the citizen concluded, but she felt the requests were, quote, carried to such an excess of meanness as the nobleness of no cause whatsoever could excuse, end quote. By the time the Philadelphia canvas was completed in early July, more than $300,000 in continental dollars had been collected from 
over 1,600 people. Because of inflation, this amount, when converted to specie, equaled only about $7,500. But even that represented a considerable sum. In financial terms, the city canvas was a smashing success. And it was a success in other ways as well. For the Philadelphia women sought and achieved symbolic goals that went far beyond the collection of money. As the anonymous canvasser put it, the women hope that the general beneficent subscription, quote, will produce the happy effect of destroying intestine discords even to the very last seeds. That hope was particularly appropriate for Philadelphia women, some of whom had become notorious during the British occupation in 77-78 for consorting with enemy troops. The author of the 1780 letter alluded delicately to that conduct when she explained that the canvassers wanted to, quote, give some of our female fellow citizens an opportunity of relinquishing former errors and avowing a change of sentiments by their contributions to the general cause of liberty and their country. The women of Trenton, New Jersey, were the first to copy the Philadelphians' lead. Maryland women also responded quickly to the Philadelphians' request. Only in one other state, Virginia, is there evidence of successful ladies' association activity. Since Martha Washington had returned to Virginia by the time the collection was completed, the association's leaders agreed to leave the disposition of the funds to her husband. There was only one problem. George Washington had plans for the money that differed sharply from theirs. Although the terms of the association seem in some measure to preclude the purchase of any article, which the public is bound to find, Washington told Joseph Reed in late June, I would nevertheless recommend a provision of shirts in preference to anything else. On 31 July, Esther Reed responded to the general. Her much revised, amended, overwritten draft with all of its tactful phrasing suggests something of the consternation his proposal caused among the canvassers who had worked so hard and so long to collect the money. Not only had she found it difficult to locate linen, she reported, she had also learned that Pennsylvania was planning to send 2,000 shirts to its troops and that a large shipment of clothing had recently arrived from France. Quote, these circumstances, together with an idea which prevails that the soldiers might not consider it in the light, she began, and then she crossed out the words following soldiers, and continued, soldiers would not be so much gratified by bestowing an article to which they look upon themselves entitled from the public, as in some other method which would convey more fully the idea of a reward for past services and an incitement to future duty. Some who are of this opinion propose turning the whole of the money into hard dollars and giving each soldier two at his own disposal. Having made her point, Mrs. Reed attempted to soften the fact that she was daring to dispute the judgment of the commander-in-chief of the American army. She added, This method I hint only but would not by any means wish to adopt that or any other without your full approbation. 
To further lessen her apostasy, she also assured Washington that if shirts were still needed after the fresh supplies had been distributed, some of the money could be applied to that use. Washington's response was, as Mrs. Reed later told her husband, quote, a little formal, as if he was hurt by our asking his opinion a second time and are not following his directions after desiring him to give them. In his letter, the general suggested that, quote, a taste of hard money may be productive of much discontent as we have none but depreciated paper for their pay. He also predicted that some soldiers' taste for drink would lead them, quote, into irregularities and disorders, and that therefore the proposed $2 bounty, quote, will be the means of bringing punishment on them. No, he insisted, if the ladies wanted to employ their benevolent donation well, the money should be used for shirts, which they should make to save the cost of hiring seamstresses. Faced with Washington's adamant stance, Esther Reed retreated. I shall now endeavor to get the shirts made as soon as possible, she told her husband, and he agreed with her decision. The general is so decided that you have no choice left so that the sooner you finish the business, the better. He wrote on 26 August, reminding her that it will be necessary for you to render a public account of your stewardship in this business, and though you will receive no thanks if you do it well, you will bear much blame should it be otherwise. End quote. Esther DeBert Reed had no chance to finish the business she had so ably begun. Shortly after her return to Philadelphia and reunion with her beloved Joseph, Esther contracted dysentery. She died on 18 September, a month short of her 34th birthday. She was buried in the graveyard of the Second Presbyterian Church on Arch Street. At the time of her death, Martha Washington was probably the only woman in America who is better known than Esther DeBert Reed. Joseph and the five children, the oldest of whom was only eight years, were devastated. The leadership of the association was assumed by Sarah Franklin Batch, with the assistance of four other women. They took control of the funds that had been in Mrs. Reed's possession and oversaw the purchase of linen and the shirt-making process. By early December, more than 2,000 shirts had been completed, and on each shirt was the name of the married or unmarried lady who made it. Late that same month, the women gave the shirts to the Deputy Quartermaster General in Philadelphia, and Mrs. Batch told General Washington that, quote, We wish them to be worn with as much pleasure as they were made, end quote. In February... 1781, Washington offered profuse thanks to the members of the committee that had succeeded Esther Reed as leaders of the association. The organization's contributions, he declared, entitled its participants, quote, to an equal place with any who have preceded them in the walk of female patriotism. It embellishes the American character with a new trait by proving that the love of country is blended with those softer domestic virtues which have always been allowed to be more peculiarly your own. 
Washington's gratitude was genuine, and the Army certainly needed the shirts. But the fact remains that the members of the association who had embarked on a very unfeminine enterprise were ultimately deflected into a traditional domestic role. The general's encomium made this explicit by its reference to female patriotism and those softer domestic virtues which presumably included the ability to sew. Ironically and symbolically, the Philadelphia women of 1780 who had tried to chart an independent course for themselves and to establish an unprecedented nationwide female organization ended up as what one amused historian has termed George Washington's sewing circle. In the fall of 1781, Joseph Reed made a half-hearted, unsuccessful effort to win a seat in the Pennsylvania legislature and then spiraled down through a series of dead-end ventures. He accepted several short-term public appointments. He planned to write a history of the revolution. He practiced law, but in a limited fashion. He made and broke a marriage engagement. He defended himself against partisan attacks on his patriotism. But his health was failing. He sailed to London with his oldest daughter and his mother-in-law and then returned to Philadelphia in 1784 in September. Over the next several months, he failed rapidly, first losing use of his arms, and then he lost his power of speech. He died on 3 March 1785 and was buried next to his beloved Esther. The American Revolution, to which both had sacrificed so much of their lives, had extracted a vicious toll on the Reed family. The children were distributed to various relatives and close friends. Teenage Patty was in London with her grandmother, DeBert. Joseph was with the Ingersoll family. Later in life, Joseph Jr. became Attorney General of Pennsylvania. Esther Jr., Dennis, and the newborn George Washington Reed went to other relatives. George grew up to join the Navy, and he died of yellow fever during the War of 1812. When the Arch Street Presbyterian burial ground was built over in 1867, the remains of Joseph and Esther Reed were moved to Laurel Hill East Cemetery, Section I, under a couple of evergreens. They're about midway between the Dahlgren family plot and theater empresario William Wood. The melting marble stone is more than two centuries old. It is barely legible. In memory of Esther, the beloved wife of Joseph Reed, president of this state, who departed this life on the 18th of September, A.D. 1780, aged 34 years. Reader, if the possession of those virtues of the heart which make life valuable, or those personal endowments which command esteem and love, may claim respectful and affectionate remembrance, venerate the ashes here entombed. If to have the cup of temporal blessings dashed in the period and station of life in which blessings may be best enjoyed demands our sorrow, drop a tear, and think how slender is that thread on which the joys and hopes of life depend. Despite having bumped heads over politics and financial and personal matters over many 
years. The Reeds were indisputably in love with one another from the day they met until the day they died. In Esther's last months on earth, she continued to write letters to Joseph. She usually signed them, I am unalterably and truly yours. Joseph's return correspondence was signed with unabated and inviolable affection. There is a good possibility that unless you are a student of the American Revolution, you never heard of this groundbreaking couple and their contributions to the new nation. Let's take a break, and I'll tell you about some stuff that's coming up at the cemetery. Lots of amazing tours and other events for the month of March, starting with Sunday, March 3rd, 2 p.m., Laurel Hill West, the Duffy's Cut Memorial Ceremony. This is becoming an annual occurrence, and every year you will see men and women dressed in their Scottish kilt finest out there with bagpipes, right by the funeral home near the entrance at Belmont Avenue, and you will see the crowd gathering and get together with them for the Duffy's Cut Memorial Ceremony. Saturday, March 9th, from 10 until noon, there's a hot spots tour at Laurel Hill East. Guinevere Eckert is the guide for that, and you're sure to have fun with that. Special tour on Sunday, March 10th. It's called Wondrous Women of Laurel Hill West, a women's history tour. And Jen Kravinskas is the person giving that tour. There's a death cafe on Tuesday, March 12th from 6.30 until 8 p.m. That will be virtual. You can find all of these things, by the way, at laurelhillphl.com slash events slash calendar. Saturday, March 16th at Laurel Hill West, Sweet Souls, Laurel Hill West Confectionery Connections. Linda Blowney is your guide for that one. And then the next day, Sunday, March 17th, from 1 p.m. until 3 p.m., St. Patrick's Day Tour and Tastes. This has become an annual event with Jerry McCormick and Bill Doran. And afterwards, there will be some Irish snacks available. Friday, March 22nd, there's a Hot Spots Tour at Laurel Hill East. From 10 a.m. until noon, Pat Rose will be your guide on that. And then a Sacred Spaces and Storied Places tour the next day, Saturday, March 23rd, from 10 a.m. until 11.30 at West. Nicole Tell will be your guide for that tour. Also Saturday, March 23rd, from 1 p.m. until 3 p.m., head over to Laurel Hill East for the Daring Dames of Laurel Hill East tour an annual tour given by Colleen Hudson about famous women buried at Laurel Hill East. And the month ends with a Boneyard Bookworms on March 28th. Uh, the March book discussion, what is the book? The Way Through the Woods on Mushrooms in Mourning by Long Lit Wound. I think I've got something coming up at the beginning of April. Tell you about that? Yeah, let me push that now. On uh, Tuesday, April 9th, 6.30 p.m., 
I will be giving a virtual tour on people who were painted by Thomas Eakins and who are buried at Laurel Hill East and Laurel Hill West. Believe it or not, I got more than 20 people to talk about. And then the big one, the one you need to get your tickets for early because it always sells out, is unsinkable to unthinkable. Titanic Passengers of Laurel Hill. Sunday, April 14th, 1 p.m. to 4 p.m. because we go back and forth between the two cemeteries. We start out at east and then head over to west because we have a half a dozen people at east that Laura Lewis will talk about. That is just some of what's coming up at Laurel Hill in the month of March and early part of April. Let's get back to the podcast. On the evening of 17 December 1874, Horticultural Hall on Broad Street, just south of the Academy of Music, overflowed with members of Philadelphia's elite. The hall was festooned with flags, banners, flowers, evergreen, shields, lights, and tea tables. And it was transformed into a celebration of Americana, an evening where the legacy of colonial and revolutionary America came together in the form of women who sought to raise funds and to celebrate their own vision of America as part of the upcoming Centennial Exhibition of 1876. As Benjamin Franklin's great-granddaughter, Elizabeth Duane Gillespie, prepared for the Philadelphia Women's Centennial Tea Party at the Academy, and other members of her committee put finishing touches on the hall's decorations for the festivities. The tea party that evening would be followed with another the next night, and the Women's Centennial Executive Committee, WCEC, were out in force to herald the achievements of their revolutionary forefathers and foremothers. Women were to be an integral part of the celebration of 1876, just as they had been at the nation's founding a hundred years earlier. At 6 p.m., the guests began to flow into the hall as the doors opened. Tables were set up to celebrate the 37 states of the nation, and visitors were welcome to enjoy sandwiches, cake, lemonade, and ice cream. The women were dressed in Martha Washington costumes, plain dresses with white collar sashes and white caps. They had chosen not to dress in finery or ball gowns, but instead they were making fashion choices that symbolically carried forward the torch of the austerity and plainness directly into their fundraising event. The menu for the evening is described in Godey's Ladies' Book. It's reminiscent of Martha Washington's levees, which also served tea, lemonade, and plain cake. The levees, however, offered a formality, with Martha seated on a raised platform. Dressed in white, Washington would greet guests surrounded by other official wives. At 7.30 p.m., the 500 women proceeded to a bridge they had built from Horticultural Hall to the Academy. Members of the Centennial Board of Finance sat on a platform next to where Gillespie and her committee were prominently featured, along with other state commissioners and businessmen who had supported their efforts. The evening was one of grand festivities, and many speeches, including from Gillespie. 
The women's fundraising activities, which range from serving tea and a simple menu to peddling teacups, netted $3,000 in one evening on behalf of the exhibition. Clearly, the women made a point that their event was at the very least inspired by and linked to the events in 18th century Boston. As the women of the WCEC entered the academy and led the evening of festivities, they showed that while women may not have been physically present at the Boston Tea Party, they certainly could celebrate it in the 19th century to illustrate their dedication to country and the ideals of liberty and freedom from tyranny. Women may not have dumped tea into Boston Harbor, but they supported the men and stood next to them at the nation's founding. Patriotism became the bedrock of the committee's fundraising efforts for the Centennial Exhibition. They celebrated the founders while simultaneously bringing forth the role of such women as Martha Washington, Esther DeBert Reed, and Sarah Franklin Batch to illustrate the role of these women when they helped to forge a new nation. Gillespie and her cohort had not just simply appeared. Many of them were involved in other previous projects and were continuing a line of work that was started by their foremothers. As we saw with Esther DeBert Reed and her organization, women created a public presence for themselves during and after the American Revolution that brought them into the public arena. Before and during the Civil War, American women created increasingly professionally run organizations that covered all gamut of their lives, benevolent, reform, religious, suffrage, women's rights associations, all were formed and run by women. Women had varied tasks in their household. While some activities centered on domestic tasks, such as babysitting or cooking, Women also negotiated a host of other economic undertakings, especially on farms and in households. Women frequently controlled much of the pasturing, herding, boiling potash, dairying, keeping poultry, processing meat, and the ubiquitous production of fibers and cloth throughout southern New England and the Mid-Atlantic. Additionally, much of the goods within upper or middling homes were purchases negotiated by women. Elizabeth Duane was born in Philadelphia in 1821 in a house on 6th Street just below Chestnut. It was practically next door to the city jail. Her father, William Duane, in 1805 had married Deborah Batch, one of the children of Benjamin Franklin's only daughter, Sarah. Elizabeth was thus three generations away from the founding father and was proud to be Franklin's great-granddaughter. William Duane had left the publishing and printing business after he married to study law. He was a Jacksonian Democrat. He served as Secretary of the Treasury of the United States from May through September of 1833, but he left Jackson's cabinet after squabbles about the Second National Bank. The family moved to a house near 5th and Walnut Streets. Williams served as Stephen Gerard's lawyer and agent and was the author of the great man's last will and testament, the one that shut out family members from his vast fortune. Elizabeth and her siblings attended several local privately run schools as they grew up. In 1849, 
28-year-old Elizabeth Duane married Captain Archibald Hamilton Gillespie, 1812-1872. He was nine years her senior. Gillespie, who was born in New York City, was commissioned by the United States Marine Corps in 1832. His service during the Mexican-American War was outstanding, and he was promoted to major, one of the highest roles attainable in the Marine Corps before the Civil War. Gillespie and Duane only stayed together for a short time before he headed back to California. They were together long enough for Elizabeth to bear a daughter that she named Ellen, and she raised as a single mother. They did briefly live in Washington, D.C., and while there, Elizabeth became close friends with Verena Davis, wife of Jefferson Davis. Elizabeth kept her married name, Gillespie. She never filed for separation or divorce from her husband, who died and is buried in California. Mrs. Gillespie was in the Visitor's Gallery of the United States Senate on the day the Southern Senators took their final leave. She tells of how she had to contain herself from shrieking, Treason! It was during the Civil War that Elizabeth started to find her true calling as a community organizer and leader. It was into one of Philadelphia's hospitals under Dr. John Neal. Neal was 1819-1880. He's buried at Laurel Hill East in Section 9. But it was under his care that Mrs. Gillespie and many other women enlisted for the war, usually in the role of matron. She left the upbringing of Ellen to her mother. She immediately assumed a leadership role, and with her enthusiasm, she stimulated the whole city to hold a great sanitary fair at Logan Square. This turned out to be the most elaborate and successful group that had ever been assembled by amateurs for a philanthropic cause. The Sanitary Commission, it was a combination of the Red Cross and the United Service Organization, the USO of those days. It inaugurated hospitals, not only far behind the lines, but also near the front. It was committed to the benevolent aid, comfort, and well-being of Union soldiers and sailors who were far from home and hearth. It was said of Mrs. Gillespie and her many like-minded patriotic women, quote, perhaps in part from temperament and in part from being able to devote their time more fully than others to the work, were peculiarly efficient and faithful, end quote. Maybe it's just because they were good at what they were doing? The buildings of the Great Central Fair were constructed in Logan Square, across the street from the magnificent Cathedral of Saints Peter and Paul. There were several interconnecting structures. The largest was a huge canopy topped by a large American flag. Within this tent were numerous booths and displays, including a large floral department and an art gallery containing, quote, the most magnificent collection of paintings ever got together in the United States, end quote. A separate building, a gourmet establishment simply named the Great Central Fair Restaurant, was connected to the circular tent. The aggregate length of fair buildings was 6,500 feet. One and a half million feet of lumber 
was utilized to complete the construction on Logan Square. And it is all rather startling to realize this was a temporary erection put into place for an event that lasted only from June 7th to June 28th. The three-week-long fair had roughly 250,000 attendees, and it raised more than a million dollars. Now, among her other duties, Elizabeth was assigned as postmistress of the fair. That's a fitting tribute, since her great-grandfather had been the first postmaster general of the United States. A directive from Mrs. Gillespie ordered that any letter deposited in letterboxes located within the fair compound must have an official fair stamp affixed to it. Letters to be mailed from the post office or delivered within the city of Philadelphia must have a United States postage stamp attached, as well as the central fair stamp. The success of this fair even set a precedent for future fundraising and celebratory fairs in Philadelphia. It was the year after the Civil War ended that discussions started about throwing a 100th birthday party for the country in Philadelphia in 1876. And Philadelphia city leaders used the 1864 Great Sanitary Fair as their template to plan for the centennial celebration. In 1873, the all-male United States Centennial Board of Finance appointed a Women's Centennial Executive Committee, the WCEC, to plan the women's building and the exhibits inside. By engaging women's help, men hoped to generate greater enthusiasm in the celebration. Women, it was believed, would increase subscriptions to Centennial stock and raise the much-needed revenue for the exhibition. The leading figure of the WCEC was its president, Elizabeth Dwayne Gillespie, a woman they assumed was unwilling to accept defeat. On 4th of July, 1873, the city of Philadelphia ceded 450 acres to the Centennial Commission to be used for the exhibition. The land overlooked the west bank of the Schuylkill River. It needed clearing and preparation. Exactly one year later, ground was broken, and the fair's president quickly put out an invitation for other nations to come and participate, come and have fun with us in Philadelphia. Under the direction of Elizabeth Duane Gillespie, female organizers sold subscriptions to Centennial stock and held receptions to stimulate interest. They canvassed neighborhoods to gain approval and support, and within two days... This committee obtained 82,000 signatures that were needed to raise an additional $1 million for the fair. Now, Congress initially hesitated to back this exhibition. Gillespie and 14 of her aides testified before the Senate, and they produced letters from American women that proved there was a lively enthusiasm in all sections of the country for a women's exhibit. Congress responded. They loaned $1.5 million for the celebration. The WCEC's main activity was to organize a special exhibit of women's work, and they reserved ample space in the main building. But in June 1875, 
less than a year before the fair was to open, the men of the Centennial Commission advised the WCEC that their display would no longer be possible. Requests from foreign exhibitors had multiplied so rapidly that the area allotted to each applicant had to be substantially limited. And if women still wanted to pay tribute to their own work, they would have to erect a separate building for its display. Oh, and by the way, they'd have to bear the entire cost themselves. This is after the women had already raised a million dollars for the general fund of the fair. Now, Elizabeth notes in her brief autobiography that she was very happy that she was alone when she got the letters from the male leaders that just shut her out. But rather than throw up her hands in defeat, she plowed forward. The WCEC set in motion its successful fundraising machinery to build its own pavilion. They made appeals to the women of the various states and territories, and in less than four months, they had raised the entire cost of $31,160 for the woman's building. Thousands of additional dollars were obtained to meet related expenses. And through this, they sponsored a woman's journal, a kindergarten, the first of its kind in the United States, a catalog of charities, a national cookbook with recipes donated by famous women, more than a thousand recipes in this cookbook, and a series of symphony concerts as fundraisers. Now, in their haste to have the women's building completed in time for the Centennial's May 10th opening, the female organizers overlooked one important feature. Either by ignorance or oversight, the contract for the pavilion was awarded to Herman J. Schwartzmann, chief engineer and designer of many other buildings at the exhibition. Soon after, promoters heard high praise of Emma Kimball, an architect from Lowell, Massachusetts, and realized that their committee had made its, quote, first great mistake, end quote, by failing to engage a woman for this charge. In her memoirs, Gillespie confided, quote, I feel pained because I fear we hindered this legitimate branch of women's work instead of helping it, end quote. So although plans for the women's building were designed by a male architect, All of its other activities were going to be the products of women's efforts and thought at the doorways of the pavilion. Visitors would be greeted by the words of Proverbs 31, let her works praise her in the gates. To demonstrate their interest in sorority in another way, organizers arranged a special opening ceremony for the woman's building. Unlike most pavilions of the exhibition, which were formally dedicated by dignitaries like President Grant and Emperor Don Pedro of Brazil, the doors of the woman's department, quote, refused to fly open at the magic touch, end quote, of a man. Instead, Centennial women invited Empress Teresa, wife of Dom Pedro, to preside at a very simple ceremony which took place at the conclusion of the exhibition's grand opening. Although both men and women were free to inspect the pavilion after its opening, the official dedication was reserved for women only. 
the idea of a separate ceremony headed by a foreign celebrity and attended by women reminded them of the emotional bonds of sisterhood shared by all women of the world. The unifying theme of the pavilion was gender. Each exhibit represented the product and shared experience of a woman's labor. They tried to render obsolete the notion of woman as submissive, nurturing, and completely non-productive. Instead, visitors found exhibits that demonstrated her positive achievements and influence. Industrial, fine arts, wood carving, furniture making, ceramics, fancy articles, clothing, woven goods, but also philanthropy, philosophy, science, medicine, education, literature, and inventions were all crammed into the pavilion and were all the work of women. The displays illustrated the power, skill, and organizational talents of women and suggested the various yet limited opportunities open to them. Contemporary feminists accepted the pavilion as a viable sign that women had the potential to do more to help themselves if they were determined and courageous. The woman's building demonstrated all that, quote, woman has been able to do, end quote, despite the limitations that social prejudices and the laws of Medes and Persians have set to her working at all, end quote. Its promoters brought together under one roof the work of women of different social classes, ethnic backgrounds, and levels of productive activities. Exhibitors planned displays to illustrate the interlocking interests experienced and understood by all women, regardless of status or heritage. Quote, a dainty damask whose flaxen threads were spun by Queen Victoria, end quote, received no greater or less distinction than the, quote, fairy fabrics which grew into matchless beauty beneath the fingers of the Belgium peasantry, end quote. From the start, Centennial women expressed their greatest concern over the question of women's advancement. To make their sisters fully aware of the commitment of organizers to this goal, they published The New Century, an eight-page weekly paper. It was printed on the premises at the women's building by women and financed entirely by the WCEC. This pro-feminist journal was edited by Sarah Halliwell of Philadelphia. It attacked the cultural and institutional barriers which prevented women from obtaining equality and justice. Its editorials argued for dress reform, married women's property and inheritance rights, changes in divorce laws, and an end to other discriminatory sex-stereotyped legislation. The journal demanded abolishment of femme couverte, and it challenged a father's absolute authority within the family over decisions concerning his children. This paper called for women's financial autonomy, had insisted upon equitable compensation and opportunity for all female endeavors. 
Equally noteworthy, this New Century publication served in effect as the organ for the Third Woman's Congress, which was held in Philadelphia in 1876. So it accepted and published articles in correspondence from all of the feminist reformers of the day, Antoinette Brown Blackwell, Eliza Sprout Turner, Kate Dogger, Julia Ward Howe, Anna Garland. Centennial women criticized unjust practices of industry, such as its hazardous, unhealthy, and immoral working conditions, its long, tedious hours of toil, and its meager monetary compensation for female wage earners. Organizers also defended women's rights to command equal pay and status in the workforce, the same as masculine counterparts received for comparable labor. At the same time, female organizers resented the plight of many bourgeois homemakers who had become victims of a masculine-defined culture characterized by dependency and leisure. Centennial women chastised those who called work degrading and improper, quote, for the delicate or refined woman, end quote. They criticized the sexual stereotype, which labeled women as indolent and wasteful, quote, the wife who cooks, mends, makes clothing, washes, irons, and does an untold amount of labor that would cost every year hundreds of dollars if paid for by the husband, should receive a better and nobler reward than being told she is extravagant. Female organizers were aware that all women, regardless of social position, shared a common economic injustice whether it was defined by hardships in the male-controlled marketplace or by the humiliating condition of financial dependence on husbands and fathers. 19th century women were plagued by either, quote, the physical injury of poverty and exploitation or the spiritual poisoning of idleness and dissipation, end quote. Centennial women recognize both factors as sources of women's inequality and lack of autonomy. Promoters aimed, quote, to give woman a definite place as a worker, to help her understand her power, see her opportunities, and to aid her in the terrible fight she has to make for equal wages, equal position, end quote. Although their building was smaller than many of the other buildings, the Women's Pavilion was a smashing success. It was situated east of Belmont Avenue, opposite the United States Government Building. It consisted of two intersecting aisles, each of them was 64 by 192 feet. At the end of each of these aisles were an 8 by 32 foot porch. The corners formed by the two aisles were filled by four pavilions, each 48 feet square. The center of the building was raised 25 feet higher than the rest of the building and was surmounted by an observatory with a dome on top 90 feet above the ground. Four columns supporting the dome were the only loads that could obstruct the view. The roof was mainly supported by trusses resting on the outer walls. The walls were painted in a light color and carefully paneled with blue on the ceilings. The panels on the side walls were decorated with allegorical groups of faith, hope, charity, art, work, education, and the family, after drawings by Camille Patou. The pavilion covered an area 
of 30,000 square feet. This was an opportunity to display what would have been overlooked as potential careers for women in another building. Exhibitors intended to show to their, quote, more timid sisters that some women have outstripped them in the race for useful and remunerative employment and to encourage these to the perseverance sure to be followed by a larger measure of success, end quote. There was nothing unusual about a dental exhibit, for example, but when one compared its generous income to that of a, quote, drudging teacher dragging out her life on her few hundred a year, end quote, the symbolic and real value of the display for women became apparent. Similarly, Women's Medical College of Pennsylvania might have challenged its male competitors by placing its exhibit of Materia Medica in the main building alongside other pharmacies. Quote, as the intention was to offer to women a new industry and a richly paying field, end quote, the college chose to instead display its highly commendable work in the woman's building. Not only did Materia Medica prove that the apothecary's trade was open to women, but it also criticized in a subtle way female dependency on a growing consumer drug market controlled by men. The exhibit proved that women could, quote, be more profitably employed in putting up medicine than in swallowing it, end quote. Much of the pavilion was devoted to human ecology and home economics. There were more than 80 patented inventions on display, patented by women, including a reliance stove, a hand attachment for sewing machines, a dishwasher, a fountain griddle greaser, a heating iron with removable handle, a frame for stretching and drying lace curtains, and a stocking and glove darner. The Centennial Women not only showed domestic production, but also employed a popular means for justifying female autonomy outside of the home by demonstrating to visitors the many ways women were making a profitable living. Now, during and after the fair, Elizabeth was showered with words of congratulations and praise. Nearly 10 million visitors attended the six-month exposition, and 37 countries participated. More than 200 buildings were constructed within the exposition's grounds. It was surrounded by a fence that was three miles long. There were five main buildings in the exposition. The main exhibition building, Memorial Hall, Machinery Hall, Agricultural Hall, and Horticultural Hall. And after the centennial closed, every penny loaned by the United States government was repaid. In 1886, Elizabeth's daughter Ellen, who is not identified by name in her Book of Remembrance, married Dr. Edward Parker Davis of Chicago. He was filling the role of professor of obstetrics at Jefferson College at the time. The services took place at Christ Church, and Elizabeth notes, quote, my daughter had been an orphan for many years, and I, being her nearest of kin, preferred to give her away myself, which I did. I find virtually nothing about Dr. and Mrs. Edward P. Davis in newspapers or other articles about Elizabeth. Through her influence in philanthropy, 
Elizabeth helped establish both the School of Industrial Art and the Pennsylvania Museum. While she served as president of the Colonial Dames of America, Gillespie fought to persuade the city of Philadelphia to declare June 14th the legal holiday we now know as Flag Day. In 1893, her group had already succeeded in getting a resolution passed to have the American flag displayed on all the public buildings. But resolutions by women were generally ignored. It was not until 1937, 36 years after Elizabeth's death, that Pennsylvania became the first state to establish June 14th as a legal holiday. So she joins the mother of Mother's Day, the mother of Memorial Day, and the mother of Thanksgiving, also buried at Laurel Hill. When Elizabeth died of pneumonia in October of 1901, she was honored in newspapers across the land, but the services were kept quiet as she had requested. Only immediate family members attended the services. Only her daughter was allowed to see the remains. Her body was interred in the southwest corner of the really big 760-square-foot fenced lot in Section L of Laurel Hill East. There are 11 ledger stones in this lot. But Elizabeth Duane Gillespie, the woman who saved both the Sanitary Fair of 1864 and the Centennial Exposition of 1876 and more or less invented Flag Day, has a grave which is unmarked. In 1903, Bryn Mawr College received a gift from the National Society of the Colonial Dames of America in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania and established the Elizabeth Duane Gillespie Fund for Scholarship in American History. Her 1895 portrait by Thomas Eakins is in the collection of the Pennsylvania Museum of Art. The Elizabeth Duane Gillespie Junior High School is a four-story Brick Bay late Gothic revival building in the nice town Tioga neighborhood in the 3900 block of North 18th Street. It's just south of Simon Gratz High School. Although it is now vacant, the building has been on the National Register of Historic Places since 1989. Anna Justina McGee, 1843-1923. When I finished my emergency medicine residency at Thomas Jefferson University in 1989, I practiced emergency medicine in and around Philadelphia for the next 27 years. One of the cardinal rules of Delaware Valley emergency medicine is that a patient with a spinal cord injury needs to go to McGee. McGee Rehabilitation Hospital. It's a 96-bed specialty medical rehabilitation hospital that was founded in 1958 to specifically provide physical and cognitive rehabilitation. Although it has partnered with Jefferson Hospital to create one of the country's 14 federally designated centers for spinal cord injury rehabilitation, the Mothership Hospital is located next to the empty shell of Hahnemann Hospital. The reason that we send people to Jeff and McGee is simple. They do better. Instead of a home for incurables like that inspired by and named for Annie Inglis, who I talked about in a prior podcast, the philosophy of McGee was to return people to as close as they could get to their pre-injury or disease state. 
And like Inglis House, McGee Rehabilitation Hospital is named for a woman who had a vision about how she could make the world a better place. Anna Justina McGee, affectionately known as AJM. In the early days of the country, rehabilitative medicine was not a well-established or recognized field. It gradually developed into a medical specialty called physiatry, or PM&R, physical medicine and rehabilitation. Some medical historians claim the first hospital to attempt physiatry was the Friends Asylum in Philadelphia, now just known as Friends Hospital. Friends was built in 1814 by the Quaker community specifically to treat the mentally ill with therapies including exercise, physical therapy, and hydrotherapy. I'm going to talk about them a little more in a couple of months when I do another podcast on the Fathers of Medicine buried at Laurel Hill. In 1841, Pennsylvania Hospital in Philadelphia was the first hospital in the world to have a separate department of physical medicine. The American Civil War opened the eyes of organized medicine to the need for rehabilitation for the tens of thousands of soldiers and civilians wounded in that four-year span. That led to the deaths of 2% of the United States population, approximately 620,000 people, and the wounding and crippling of tens of thousands more. Three of every four surgical procedures performed during the war were amputations. Chloroform was used abundantly as anesthesia. In fact, more than 40 anesthesia-related deaths are recorded. Because of a fear of young, immature physicians cutting off limbs willy-nilly, only one in 15 doctors was permitted to amputate, a procedure that usually took no more than 10 minutes. Sometimes they could get it done in two or three minutes. Of the 175,000 extremities wounded in northern soldiers, about 30,000 underwent amputation, and just over one on four of those patients died. That means at the war's end, there were more than 21,000 new amputees in the northern part of the country. Most of them were young, healthy, vigorous, and eager to get on with life, missing limb or not. The numbers for the South are unclear, since many medical records were destroyed in the final days of the war during the capture of Richmond. Not all soldiers opted for the prosthetics of the day, which were cumbersome and quite uncomfortable, not to mention expensive. Now, for the Union soldier amputee, the government paid for the prostheses. But if you were a rebel soldier missing a limb, you had to depend on your state to help. During the year after the war ended, the state of Mississippi spent 20% of its annual budget on artificial limbs for veterans. The sight of men without limbs in city streets, in offices, in shops was common. No one even seemed to pay any attention. In Philadelphia, there were enough young, otherwise healthy amputees, both from the war and from railroad accidents, that they could field baseball teams. The 20 April 1883 issue of the Times of Philadelphia has an article headlined, Two Maimed Ball Nines. The team of upper limb amputees was called the Snorky Baseball Club, 
It's named for the crippled hero of the famous melodrama of the day called Under the Gaslight. That's the one where the one-armed snarky unties the hero from the track just before the train comes. They were pitted against a team of leg amputees appropriately dubbed the Hoppers. It was after the war that many Philadelphia women pursued recognition as intelligent individuals and champions of community service, like Elizabeth Duane Gillespie. In earlier podcasts, I talked about other community leaders, like Mary Channing Wister and her sister, Frances Ann Wister, Sarah York Stevenson and her daughter-in-law, Christine Wetherill Stevenson, many, many others. It was this legacy of service that Anna J. McGee, AJM, sought to join. Anna's father, James McGee, born in 1802, was a poor boy. He served an apprenticeship in the saddlery and harness business. As he came of age, he was befriended by James Ronaldson. That's the namesake for the defunct Ronaldson Cemetery, which is now the location of the Palumbo Recreation Center on South 10th Street. In addition to opening a leather shop in Philadelphia, James started a branch in New Orleans with his brother-in-law, Napoleon Knies. They did good business because they almost always had contracts with the government for some article of saddlery. In 1830, at age 28, James married Carolyn Axford Knies, age 20, a fourth-generation descendant of Johann Christian and Christina Knies, who had arrived in Philadelphia from Rotterdam in September 1753. James and Carolyn moved five times in their early years together as their family grew. Fanny in 1832, Carolyn or Carrie in 1836, Elizabeth or Eliza in 1837, James in 1839, Anna in 1843, Horace in 1845, and Frank in 1854, when his oldest sister was 22 years old. In 1843, the year that Anna was born, the McGees moved to 465 Mulberry Street, close to what is now known as Independence Mall. Mulberry Street was what we now call Arch Street before the 1854 consolidation. The house was across the street from Christ Church's burial grounds, where Benjamin Franklin, Francis Hopkinson, Benjamin Rush, and many other colonial patriots lay at rest. They lived there for the next 14 years. In 1850, Hannah's maternal grandmother, Sarah Canese, moved within one block of the McGee home to 384 Mulberry Street. James McGee retired from the leather business as a relatively wealthy man before the Civil War broke out in 1861. But in June of 1861, James and Carolyn's daughter, named for her mother, but who went by Carrie, died unexpectedly. Her death notice read, Death is ever a painful subject. How truly is it said, the good always die young. The choicest flower is the soonest plucked. The ripest grain is the first to be cut down. But yesterday, the idol of a household, the charmer of a large circle of friends, that gay, that animated, yet sincere and pious creature, shed her blissful influence where her footstep trod. Today, she stands upon a prouder, nobler, holier eminence, 
on the right hand of a great and good Redeemer, a just reward to one who asked, who sought none other. We, your friends, alone do suffer. We alone lament that your grace, your wit, your beauty could not save you from the tomb. End quote. James sought solace in his faith. Carey was initially interred in the graveyard of St. Stephen's Episcopal Church, which had been founded in 1823 at 19 South 10th Street. He was elected vestryman the same year of his daughter's death, and he served in this role until his own death in 1878. As the war continued, the New Orleans branch of the McGee Company was confiscated by Confederate forces. Although the business was restored in 1866, James's brother Michael retired and returned to his home in Philadelphia at 1418 Arch Street. Meanwhile, Napoleon Canace took over the Michael McGee Company and renamed it the Canace Company. Most of the Canace family are interred at Woodlands. That's K-N-E-A-S-S, by the way. And his three brothers did not serve in the military during the Civil War. James Ronaldson, 1839-1914, the eldest, entered Haverford College and graduated in 1859. He studied law for several years and did not enter the family business until later. Horace, 1846-1912, the middle son, graduated from the University of Pennsylvania with the class of 1865. He read law in the office of George W. Biddle in Philadelphia, but he eventually joined the family business. Frank Hamilton, 1854-1904, was the third son and the youngest of the family. He was only 11 at the end of the Civil War. He graduated from Penn in 1878, read law, and later joined his brothers in business on South 4th Street. The education of the McGee sisters is not documented during these years. It was likely conducted in the home by tutors. Fanny and Eliza were of college age in the 1850s, and Anna by the mid-1860s, but schools of higher learning were extremely limited for upper-class Philadelphia women until the Agnes Irwin School was established in 1869. At the time of the Civil War, women were often thought incapable of acquiring knowledge like men. This attitude was prevalent in 1866, according to a paper on higher education of women in Pennsylvania. Quote, a woman's mind, like her place in society, was considered capable of only limited functions. It was generally conceded that women had minds, but of an inferior quality, incapable of the depth, scope, and analytical powers fondly attributed by males to their own. End quote. After he left the leather business, James McGee got into railroading just as it was expanding nationwide. As an incorporator and director of the Pennsylvania Railroad, he has been called the father of the Pennsylvania Railroad, although many people could also share that title. He founded Jeanette, a company town near Pittsburgh. The McGee brothers and their father played a prominent role in the expansion of railroads in Philadelphia and adjoining regions. And they got rich. 
When Anna wrote her family history, she mentioned a first cousin, Napoleon Bonaparte Canace Jr., born the same year that she was in 1843. He was blinded at age seven from the effects of a sunstroke. But he survived and he conquered his disability and became an advocate for the blind. In 1867, he established Canace Philadelphia Magazine for the Blind, which used a special raised print system that he had developed. This was followed by Canace's Music Journal for the Blind. This must have impressed Anna and perhaps influenced her attitude about physical disability because she lauded his achievements for the blind. In 1858, the McGee family moved from 465 Mulberry Street to 1219 Arch Street, same road, just eight blocks further west near Broad. It is there that James died in 1878 and Carolyn died in 1886. The six children, three brothers and three sisters, none of whom ever married, remained together and shared that big house for 31 years, assisted by a full complement of servants. The McGee men were involved in historic sports and social clubs. James was a member of the Union League for 38 years. He was a member of the Historical Society of Pennsylvania, Philadelphia Country Club, Rittenhouse Club, etc., etc. Horace had memberships in the Historical, Genealogical, and Colonial Societies of Pennsylvania, the Art, Philadelphia, and Germantown Cricket Clubs. And he was one of the most serviceable members of the Board of Managers of the Pennsylvania Society of Sons of the Revolution. It was an organization he was very deeply interested in. Frank was a member of the Rittenhouse Club. All three belonged to the Franklin Institute. Although it may seem strange now that none of the sisters married, many upper-class daughters preferred the potential uncertainty of independence over an arranged marriage. In fact, during the Gilded Age of the late 19th century in the United States, about half of the white upper-middle-class women never married. In 1889, the six McGee siblings, now aged 45 to 57, moved together to Rittenhouse Square, 1720 Walnut Street. Currently, that is the location of a Lululemon. By now, Rittenhouse Square was populated mostly by the refined gentry of old Philadelphia family, often with colonial roots. Heritage was more important than wealth because new money went to North Broad Street. During the third of a century, between 1889 and 1923, the McGee women emerged as ladies of education, scholarship, and innovation in the elite women's organizations of the times. By the dawn of the progressive era in the 1890s, Fanny, Eliza, and Anna had the financial security and confidence in their societal status to explore opportunities for expression. They joined numerous women's organizations. They pushed for the progress of women and proudly displayed their patriotic roots. Fanny led the way. She was elected to the Colonial Dames of Pennsylvania in 1892, a year after the organization was created. Anna followed in 1896. Each sister joined the Daughters of the American Revolution, the DAR, shortly after it was created in 1890. Their brothers were all members of the Pennsylvania Sons of the Revolution, which had been formed only a few years previously in 1888. 
Fanny and Anna also showed interest in women's organizations which advocated physical and artistic activities for women. Fanny served as an officer in a society of women's members of the Board of Trustees of the Future Art Museum of Philadelphia. She was also an early member of the Sedgley Club, whose founder, Margaret Corley's, claimed in 1903, was the oldest women's bike, barge, and canoe athletic club. Anna was an early member of the Acorn Club, which was established in 1889, the same year the McGee siblings moved to Rittenhouse Square. The Acorn Club was the first women's club of its kind in the country. It was founded in 1889. The Acorn Club owes its conception to a walking group, the Outing Club. When they returned from a tramp in the spring of 1888, one of its members said that it would be nice to have a room of their own where they could go after their walks, where they could hold meetings, keep some books and magazines, make a cup of tea. At the inception, the club had 10 charter members. The first meeting place was a house with a small, narrow room on Pine Street. The first clubhouse was located at 1504 Walnut Street and larger nearby locations were purchased as the club grew until it settled at 1519 Locust in 1956. The clubhouse is beautifully decorated with art, which they have acquired over the past 130 years, and the club is very active in civic affairs. Wealth, art, and the Episcopal faith were the fabric of elite society in eastern cities at this time. By the late 19th century, most upper-class Quaker families were assimilated into the Episcopal Church. The McGee family had embraced Episcopalianism from the moment James and Carolyn were married at St. Stephen's Church. If you visit that church today, you can see the impression left by the McGee family. If you need a reminder, St. Stephen's also serves today as the home for the Lantern Theater. Don't go down the alley to the theater go in the front door. The church was designed by William Strickland with a Frank Furness transept and vestry room added in 1878. The McGees are memorialized by their gifts. The family contributed the church's first two figurative stained glass windows hung together vertically in the Furness transept in 1879-1880. The bottom one is in memory of their father and the top is for Sister Carrie. The siblings honored Sister Eliza with a new organ in 1907. That has since been replaced. And Sister Fanny with a dramatic chancel redecoration by Louis C. Tiffany, surrounding the 1888 mosaic reredos of the Last Supper that honors their mother that currently commands the East Wall. A marble portrait bust of James McGee, which was originally between the McGee windows in the transept and the altar, commemorates his many years as a vestryman. That bust was later moved to the lobby when the transept was added, and then moved to the church vestibule after 1918. That's where it has been for the last 106 years. Lastly, the church recognized Anna for her contributions to the needy with a stained glass window close to the entrance. This window fittingly portrays AJM's legacy in its symbolism, which directly relates to the establishment of the McGee Rehabilitation Hospital to serve the needy of Philadelphia and recovering from medical illness. As Anna grew older, 
she lost each of her siblings, but she kept a full staff of servants. She had an intense dislike for automobiles, and she used her carriage to attend events at the Academy of Music long after most of her neighbors had switched to chauffeurs. Her oldest sister, Fanny, was the last to die in 1916 at 84. Anna was aware that since none of the seven McGee siblings had children, her family line would end with her death. Her will became very important to her. She wrote it in 1916, but then she modified it 16 times over the next seven years. The will is detailed and precise. It names more than 50 beneficiaries. Individual beneficiaries include 12 cousins and numerous friends and associates. She left funds to St. Stephen's for the perpetual care of her family memorials in the church. But the church was strictly prohibited from using any of her bequests to erect or expand buildings. Jefferson Hospital, just a block or so from the church, was named along with 14 other health care institutions. But the request to Jefferson would be withdrawn if it ever chose to merge with the University of Pennsylvania. Apparently, a group of noisy Penn students had once annoyed her. In memory of her parents, she endowed the McGee Professorship of Medicine at Jefferson Medical College. The last stipulation she made in the codicil, dated 10 July 1923, five months before she died, was, I direct that my father's picture, now in the front parlor of my home, and my mother's picture, in the second-story back bedroom of my home, shall be placed permanently in the Memorial to the McGee family, to be known as the McGee Memorial Hospital for Convalescence, which I have established in my will. This would be Anna's most noteworthy and humanitarian legacy, the allocation of sufficient funds for the creation of McGee Memorial Hospital for Convalescence, a medical institution that would provide rehabilitative care to the poor of Philadelphia. With a gift of $1,285,000, she established what is now McGee Rehabilitation Hospital. The money went into a trust fund where it could gather interest until enough had accrued to meet Anna's wishes. In 1954, the Orphans Court of Philadelphia permitted the use of the McGee Trust Fund, which had grown to more than $6 million over the prior 31 years, to establish a rehabilitation center, ruling that rehabilitation was now a dynamic form of convalescent care and that such service was consistent with the wishes of Anna McGee. It followed her specifications. The hospital should take patients over 14 years old, but without regard to sex, color, nativity, or religion. In gratitude for her generosity, Jefferson commissioned her portrait, which is on permanent loan to McGee Rehabilitation Hospital. The search for a founding director for the hospital led to H. Fraser Perry, M.D., who assumed the post in September 1955. He set up an office space at 1500 Walnut Street, worked with a team to find an appropriate building for the hospital. They decided on the former factory at 1513 Race Street, central location. Anna had stipulated in her will this was not to be put on the main line. This was supposed to be in Center City, Philadelphia. 
this building had open floor space. There were relatively few walls that would have to be taken down. So the trust purchased the building from American Meter Company, and construction and renovations began in December 1956. The total cost of the project, which was designed for 39 patients, amounted to about $2.5 million. Opening ceremonies for McGee Memorial Hospital for Convalescents were 9 March 1958. And with a staff of 30 in place, the hospital, the first of its kind in Philadelphia, began admitting patients the very next day. In the first two years, approximately 57% of the care provided was free. In 1923, Anna Justina McGee was the last of her family to die. She was 80 years old. Her obituary said she was 77. The entire family is buried in a plot in Section K. It's not far from the Patterson Lion. They have a moderate-sized cross with the name James McGee carved at the base. It would be incredibly difficult to determine how many thousands of people's lives have been improved because of the donation made by AJM in the name of her parents, her brothers, and her sisters. March edition of Biographical Bites from Bala, Laurel Hill West Stories for Women's History Month, I hope to tell you about Grace Nottage Nicholas, school teacher, police officer, real estate broker, singer, and model who was nearly trampled to death in the North Tower on 9-11. The April 2024 episode of All Bones Considered Laurel Hill Stories, Let's Play Ball, Part 3 for the opening of the baseball season. This time, it's Jack McFetridge, who spent a very brief career in pro ball with the Phillies. Cub Stricker, who played for seven teams in an 11-year career and was arrested once for assaulting a fan in the stands. Sports writer Francis Richter, founder of the magazine Sporting Life, who was a World Series official for many years and is in the Baseball Hall of Fame and second baseman Pete Childs, who spent parts of two seasons in the pros with the Phillies and the Chicago Orphans. Laurel Hill East is located at 3822 Ridge Avenue in the East Falls section of Philadelphia. It's an easy walk from the bus stop at Ridge and Allegheny for SEPTA buses R1 and 61. Admission is free, as is parking in the lot across the street 
although spaces are very limited. There's an app you can download for a self-guided tour through its 78 acres. Laurel Hill West is at 225 Belmont Avenue in Balakinwood, with parking at the main entrance and at the Bell Tower. Your best bet for public transportation to West is to take the Scepter Regional Rail to Maniunk or one of many buses to the Wissahickon Transfer Center on Ridge Avenue. Then cross the Schuylkill River on the Pencoid Pedestrian Bridge and come up, and I do mean up, it's an uphill climb, of Writer's Ferry Road, the entrance near the Pet Cemetery. If you download the audios I've done for self-guided tours, they will lead you to a 40 to 45 minute audio tour that talks about the people interred along the route through the cemetery. Both Laurel Hill East and Laurel Hill West are currently open from 7 a.m. to 5 p.m., soon to be 7 p.m. when the time changes. We welcome dog walkers, bike riders, photographers, painters, bird watchers, nature buffs, tree and plant lovers, skateboarders, strollers, both the two-footed and four-wheel variety. All we ask is you be nice. Keep your dogs on a lead. Watch out for other folks on your bicycles and your skateboards. If you follow us on Instagram and Facebook, you'll get a daily reminder of our inhabitants and activities. You can also follow All Bones Considered on Instagram and Facebook. And once you've fallen in love with these hotspots, become a friend of Laurel Hill, and you'll have the opportunity for several members-only special tours conducted each year, including some inside the mausoleum visits. They may be cemeteries, but they are a couple of the liveliest spots in town. The key to finding the gift shop online, click on the support button, and then find the gift shop in the left-hand column. Our theme song, Names at Peace, was written and performed by local artist James Harrow. All Bones Considered, Laurel Hill Stories, and Biographical Bites from Bala, Laurel Hill West Stories, are both researched, written, narrated, and produced by me, Joe Lex, retired professor of emergency medicine at Temple University. You can reach me through my email, joe at joelex.net. Remember to keep body and soul together until next time on All Bones Considered Laurel Hill Stories, where the plot thickens. Stick around to hear the references that I use for this podcast. And until the next time we meet, stay safe, stay well. There were three major resources that I used for Esther DeBert Reed. The first was from American Heritage Magazine, a magazine that I subscribed to for about 50 years. Uh, This is from the Volume 31, Issue 3, dated 1980. It's called The Philadelphia Ladies Association by Mary Beth Norton. That's in the April-May issue of the magazine. That article was tantalizing. And I got in touch with Mary Beth Norton. Believe it or not, this this article was written 44 years ago, um, but she's still around. She is an instructor at uh, which university? Forgot to write it down. And she said, yes, I could use whatever I wanted from the article, but she requested that I give credit to the book that this was excerpted from, which is Liberty's Daughters, the Revolutionary Experience of American Women, 1759-1800, by Boston Little Brown. 
Uh, her name again is Mary Beth Norton. And this book was quoted in the other book that I'm going to tell you about. It was, in fact, quoted extensively. Um, the other book is called Sentiments of a British American Woman, Esther DeBert Reed and the American Revolution. It's by Owen S. Ireland. Pennsylvania State University Press, University Park, Pennsylvania, copyright 2017. So a relatively recent publication on Esther DeBert Reed. The third thing to mention, it's called The Life of Esther DeBert, afterwards Esther Reed of Pennsylvania, by William B. Reed, privately printed, Philadelphia, C. Sherman Printer, 1853. For Elizabeth Duane Gillespie, I got a lot of good information out of an article called Toward a New Century, Women and the Philadelphia Centennial Exhibition, 1876. It was by Mary Frances Cordato, Pennsylvania Magazine of History and Biography, January 1983, Volume 107, Number 1, pages 113 to 135. And then there is a dissertation called Remembrance and the American Revolution, Women in the 1876 Centennial Exhibition. It's by Dolores Fufer Scherer. Fufer is P-F-E-U-F-F-E-R, Scherer, S-C-H-E-R-E, submitted for partial fulfillment of the requirement of the degree Doctor of Philosophy in December of 2016. Lots of good information in that. And then there were a couple of books about the exposition that I used. Finally, I quoted from a book of remembrance by Mrs. E.D. Gillespie, Philadelphia and London, J.B. Lippincott Company, 1901. Uh, to my devoted daughter and her husband, my son, counselor, and friend. This book is dedicated by the author. No mention of her ex-husband. And believe it or not, no mention of her daughter by name. She talked about her son-in-law a couple of times, but really didn't mention her daughter that much. In talking about Anna McGee and rehabilitative medicine, a really useful article is Medical and Surgical Care During the American Civil War, 1861 to 1865. That's by Robert F. Riley, R-E-I-L-L-Y. That is from the Proceedings of Baylor University Medical Center, 2016, Volume 29, Issue 2, pages 138 to one. 42. Most of the information came from an article called Anna McGee's Vision, 100 Years Past, 1923-2023, by Christopher Formal, M.D., and John F. Detuno, Jr., M.D. Lots of research went into this, and it is really a nice article. You can find it free online at the McGee Hospital site which is, of course, part of Thomas Jefferson University. I think that pretty much covers what I wanted to tell you. I hope you enjoyed the show. Again, my email, joe at joelex.net. If you have any questions, suggestions, whatever, get in touch with me. And maybe I'll see you at the cemetery. Stay safe. Stay well.